Strong Tower, I want to tell you that I love you. I love you. Amen. Amen. I appreciate the love. Amen. Thank you. I'm so thankful that you are a church that sets tables and invites God's people to come. The men had a table set this weekend uh, at Ben Wolf's house, and the brothers got together. Elder Sherman gave a good word. They ate some good food. Uh, didn't bring me any this morning, right? <laughs> but amen. Thank God for that. Also, the ladies had a table set this weekend, and they got together around crafts, and I saw a picture online that almost drove me to tears seeing the beauty and the diversity in the men and in the women of our church. And then uh, the young adults got together, the neighborhood hooked up this weekend as well and had a great time. And, uh, and so in this age where all the more there's a stress on being high tech, but it also promotes low touch. I'm so glad that we're Again, setting tables, inviting people to come Wednesday night, and even what we're going to do after church today, because we need each other. As Sister Felicia said, that God has not created us to be alone. He wants us to be with one another. So after church today, come on down. Um, even if you can only stay for a few minutes, come on down and, and make sure you connect with people and love on folks. And, and I believe there's food other than chili because somebody said, man, I don't want any chili, you know, for, for various reasons. There's some of you that must stay away from chili, but there's other food that will be there as well. So come on down if you're visiting with us today, your family. So we invite you to the Lord's table with us. Um, and speaking of family, one of our family members has been away from us for a few weeks now, uh, Pastor Jerry, because he had knee surgery and, um, and so he was going to try to come this morning, but he's still in that place where uh, it, it's painful to sit in one place for more than 20 minutes. So he has to get up and move and all that kind of stuff. So we're hoping he'll be back next week on Palm Sunday, but keep him lifted up. Are y'all doing all right at home with him? He. He needs something to do, and uh, yeah, we miss our brother. We love our brother, so let's keep him lifted up that he can get back to us as soon as possible. Um, also, this coming Wednesday for Bible study, we're going to set the stage for the following Wednesday. The following Wednesday, we will have as a church a Passover Seder and meal. So the following Wednesday, we're going to have a Seder and a meal together. And it's imperative that you register for that. Because one thing about these tables we set, in order to prepare well, we have to know who's coming. So when we think about the Seder, there's so many elements that go into that. And so to make sure that we set those tables in the fellowship hall well, we need to know who's coming. And also the meal afterwards will be roasted chicken and mashed potatoes and green beans and so we're going to have communion. We're going to do like a combination Seder and first century church communion 
when they would have communion over a meal. So again, these are more opportunities for the church to come together and not just be uh, a group that gathers in the sanctuary, but who again, sit at tables and loving on one another and being loved on. So uh, this week we'll set up the Seder for next Wednesday. So you don't want to miss. And as um, our lovely Sydney reminded us, let's make sure we register. Now, is Sydney in the house today? There she is. Hey, Sydney. Is your husband with you? Hey, what's up, husband? Brother Gabrielle. All right now. Y'all are in the honeymoon section up there. All that love just dripping. We're so proud of both of you, and uh, we're, we're watching with expectancy to see how if one can put 1,000 to flight, two can put 10,000 to flight. So your um, effectiveness in the kingdom has been exponentially multiplied because the two became one. And we love you guys. We're so proud of you. What a beautiful wedding it was. Uh, my girl changed clothes. I, when I say changed clothes, she changed clothes. She had um, not only a traditional wedding dress, but she also had an African wedding dress as well. And man, it was wonderful. It was wonderful. So it's just a, a picture of things to come. Also, 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 um, when we get into Holy Week, not only will there be a Seder, there's also going to be our traditional Good Friday service where I've asked several of our lay members to lead us that night. And it's really one of the best things we, we, we do here as a church. So I'll tell you more about that next week. But again, let, 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 let's get up and come out to the house of the Lord. Um, one other announcement is that um, Elder Paul Revere has served as an elder at Strong Tower Bible Church Let's see, probably for over 20 of the near 28 years we've been together as a church, um, Elder Paul has been what, what he calls my rear armor bearer. But because of grandchildren, he is saying, Pastor, I love you and the brothers, but my time as an active elder must come to an end because he travels all the time to see them grandkids. And how many folks know, I don't know yet, but I hear that when you become a grandparent, you become goofy. That when you become a grandparent, um, is it true, Chauncey? Yeah, yeah, he's been goofy for a long time. Yeah, and so he travels just to be with those grandchildren, he and Carolyn. And so um, he notified the brothers last year that he would be stepping down, but not away from the church, but just stepping down as an elder. And so um, as an elder team, we're always looking for uh, men that we can bring on to the group to help us serve the church in leading the church. And so um, we've had a gentleman who has been in the elder candidate process for many months now. Um, and we haven't made it public until today. And there will be an ordination examination later. We'll talk about that down the road. But um, I want to inform you that um, the, the man who will more than likely join the elder team is the man who got up here and led the offering prayer, and that is John Kiever. Amen. Love you, man. Love you, man. Amen. God is good. He provides the resources we need to do his work. And resources are not always financial or material, but his resources, for the most part, are people. And he sends the people we need 
to serve in various places, including in leadership at the church. So John, we're excited. Um, John is finishing up his doctorate. So he's been uh, very busy and consumed with that, but yet he's also made the elders meetings when we have them. He teaches classes. I believe he's going to teach the marriage class coming up on the 9th or 12th or one, the, the third week of April. He's teaching that class. His lovely wife, Shar, has uh, been an instrumental piece in what we're doing by way of outreach. Um, their children have participated and contributed to the student ministry. Just a blessed and beautiful family. So we're thankful that the Lord brought them our way over, really two years ago, brought them our way. So keep them in prayer as we move on to that next phase with them. All right, I think those are all my announcements. Sister Darina, do I have any other announcements today other than you are beautiful, you are fine, you are all that... <laughs> Oh, my God. I love you, girl. Oh, man, that's my bride, man. She, she tightens a brother up uh, with tact. <laughs> we talked Wednesday about how to correct people and, and, and correcting them the way you want to be corrected, you know. And my wife knows how to use a velvet slipper on a brother uh, to get him where he needs to be. It's a gift. It's a gift. It's a gift. Praise God. All right, turning your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. I've been trying to preach um, series that are one month long. And so this month we've been dealing with the kingdom of God. Here comes the incredible kingdom of God. And it's nearly impossible to condense any kingdom topic or biblical topic into four weeks but I know for us, our attention spans can be short, but also there's just so much to cover, um, so many great things to get into. And so um, we have some wonderful things in store for the remainder of the year. But today we finish up this series about the incredible kingdom of God, but we transition next month in April where we're going to experience uh, the Passover and, of course, the resurrection. We're going to talk about Ride On King Jesus all month in April. So, so these series, they build. And then if the Lord allows, come May, we're going to talk about heaven a little bit. Just for a few weeks, we're going to talk about heaven. And so uh, we're going to have a good time doing that because, again, the king has prepared a place for us. So all of this fits together. But today, Acts chapter 1, let's see here. Do you guys have the scriptures Y'all good? Because this was the day I left the house without my Bible. I even left the house without my sermon notes. Had to turn around and go back. So um, I'm going to need Acts 1 on the screen when y'all are ready. So right there in front of me. We good or do I need to turn and read? Okay, all right. All right, I will turn and read. Praise the Lord. Acts chapter 1, the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. Next scripture to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering 
by many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the what? The kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, listen to this, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. So with your prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit, let's talk about the kingdom over the empire. Let's close out this month with a message entitled, The Kingdom Over the Empire. Let's pray. Father God, today we sang, open the eyes of my heart. We want to see you. And now, Lord, open the ears of our soul. We, we want to hear you today. Lord, help us with the distractions. Help us to be focused. Help us, Lord, to have ears that hear as well as eyes that see so that we can have a heart that feels and hands and feet that move and do for your glory. Thank you, Lord, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And every Sunday, yet alone, every time we open up the Bible, you have the permission and the authority to challenge our thought processes. All of us are in process. None of us know it all. So, Lord, we should be disciples who are quick to learn. Help me as the pastor of this congregation to present sound biblical doctrine. Um, Lord God, that can be balanced with scripture and that, Lord God, it agrees with the soul of the believers who are present here and watching online. So, Lord, uh, touch this time. We thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The kingdom over the empire. As the disciples were meeting with the risen Christ, the Bible says that Jesus spent approximately 40 days with the disciples and especially the apostles because he would soon ascend and go to glory. So while he is meeting with them, one of the things he is doing is he's teaching them about the kingdom. I find it interesting that he began his earthly ministry teaching and talking and preaching about the kingdom of God. And he ends his earthly ministry by teaching, preaching, and proclaiming the kingdom of God. And when I read those early verses in Acts chapter 1, I am immediately convicted because unfortunately, I fall into the category of preachers and Christians who spend more time talking about church than talking about the kingdom of God. That should have been an amen right there because I know I'm not by myself. Because we have a lot of believers who spend more time, as we'll see today, talking about and espousing political views than they do the kingdom of God. 
We are not too um, educated about the kingdom, even though the scriptures speak in a profound way about the kingdom of God over and over again. We did our best to simplify the kingdom of God as meaning the rule of God, that God is king, Jesus is Lord, and as such, he rules over every realm, every sphere, every dimension, every circumstance, every situation, every person, every nation, every demon. Jesus is king. He is sovereign. He rules. And so we have been grappling with the kingdom of God we, in, in an attempt to grasp the kingdom of God. And so we don't get this in one sermon series. No, we're striving to get it every day of our lives as we await for the king to come from heaven. One of the last verses of the Bible, which is found in the last chapter of the Bible, spoken by the Lord Jesus, is the fact that he says, I am coming quickly. And we respond, the bride, we say, come, Lord Jesus, because when the Lord comes, when the king comes, he will establish his kingdom on earth. Well, the apostles asked a legitimate question. And they asked, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Lord, as they were speaking with the resurrected Messiah, they were asking him a legitimate question. Will you restore the kingdom to Israel? Will you do it now? Well, let me tell you why this is a legitimate question from the apostles. The apostles heard Jesus speak often about his coming kingdom. Luke chapter 17, verse 24. The apostles greatly anticipated Jesus' coming kingdom. Matthew chapter 20, verse 21, which is why they fought often about who was the greatest and who would sit at the right hand and on the left hand. Because for them, they knew that Jesus was a king and they were trying to position themselves in his cabinet, if you will, to have prominence over the others. So they anticipated the kingdom. The apostles knew Jesus' kingdom would come with the Holy Spirit. So in Acts 1, as he's talking about wait here in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit, their minds go back to Joel chapter 2, where the prophet prophesied that in the last days, God would pour out his spirit on all flesh, men and women, maid servants, men servants, they will all receive the Holy Spirit. And so in their mind, when Jesus is talking about the spirit coming, wait here for the spirit, they're thinking, oh, this is it. The kingdom comes when the one who's anointed with the Holy Spirit pours out the Holy Spirit onto believers. The apostles were not thinking the risen Christ would ascend back to heaven. That's not what they were thinking. They were thinking he was here to rule right now. They didn't see that he would step on a cloud and ascend to heaven in a cloud, which is why they stood there mesmerized, looking up, dumbfounded, and an angel had to appear and say, this same Jesus who has ascended to heaven will in like manner come back again. But they weren't thinking ascension. 
they were thinking and hoping that his rule would begin right then and there. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, they were looking for the one on whose shoulders the government would rest. And the apostles knew the Messiah's kingdom involved the restoration of Israel. Micah chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, that again in the last days, Israel, Judah, Jerusalem would be exalted above all other nations and the word of the Lord would come out of Judah and cover the earth as the waters do the seas. They were believing that now was the time to rise from being the tail to being the head once again. Because Israel had succumbed to the Babylonians, to the Assyrians, to the Greeks, and now to the Romans. And they're looking for not only this spiritual Messiah, but they're looking for this political or national Messiah to deliver the people from the tyranny of oppression. And so they had a legitimate question. Are you going to restore the kingdom now? And I love Jesus' answer. He didn't say, no, I'm not going to do it. He just says, it's not for you to know the time for when the Father is going to do that. So as I'll try to posit before you today, the only group of people on the face of the earth who can even come close to uh, aligning themselves with the king, King Jesus, and having a national impact as a result is the people of God known as the Jews. The Jews. For just as salvation comes into the world to the Jew first and then to non-Jews or Greeks or Gentiles, so the kingdom of God is going to come to the Jewish people first and to the rest of the world. That's what I want to prove today when we talk about the kingdom being over the empire. And here are three Old Testament scriptures, and believe me, there are many. But here are three from which the apostles developed their belief about Jesus ruling as king. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 13 when your days are fulfilled, and this is God speaking to David, King David. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, this passage has a near and far fulfillment. The near fulfillment speaks of Solomon because Solomon would build the, the, the temple, not David. But then the far fulfillment speaks of one of David's descendants, Jesus, because Solomon's reign was not eternal. But the son of God's reign will be eternal. It will last forever. So we go to verse 16 of 2 Samuel 7. And it says, and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne, the Davidic throne, shall be established forever. Why? Because one of his descendants will sit on that throne, the eternal son of God. Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 through 6 says, behold, 
the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now, this is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. So the 11 who used to be the 12, they are now believing that this is that day. But then there's Zechariah chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. I'll read this for you. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst, says the Lord. Many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and they shall become my people, and I will dwell in your midst. Then you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and the Lord will take possession of Judah and his, as his inheritance in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. So they are thinking that now is that time. Well, at one time, Ancient Israel operated as a true theocracy. A theocracy is a government that God runs and leads and heads. And they operated as a true theocracy with Moses, Joshua, and the judges all serving under God. Unfortunately, Israel foolishly became a monarchy with King Saul. They said they wanted a king like all the other nations. And if God could be offended, he would have been offended by that preposterous and foolish notion. But God had a plan. And as I like to say, he can still hit a bullseye with a crooked stick from us crooked human beings. And so they foolishly became a monarchy beginning with King Saul. Israel and Judah would go on to have 40 different kings in the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. But David would be known as Israel's greatest king. And God said one of David's descendants would be the eternal king of the Jews. This would make this king a man as well as God. This king would return to the nation and, and, and bring it back to a legitimate theocracy when he reigns on the earth from Jerusalem for 1,000 years. And that's based on Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. Ancient Israel was sanctioned by God not only to be a theocracy, but also to possess, listen to this, the promised land. God promised them a land. And the earth is the Lord's and everything that's in it. And he promised them a land. But not only that, he also called them to destroy the inhabitants of that land. This is why there is a grave danger in attempting to replace Israel with the American church or with European colonizers. Why? God did not sanction England the church or the colonists to possess America or any portion of land by destroying the native peoples and enslaving Africans. 
So we got to listen to that now. God never called the church in any era to violently conquer land or people for his sake. Essentially, replacement theology believes the church replaced Israel in being the covenant people of God. Let me read that again. Replacement theology believes the church replaced Israel in being the covenant people of God, which is why many have felt in years past they can fall under commands and promises given to Israel and co-opt them to make them mean what the Christians wanted them to mean for themselves so that they could feel justified in taking land and conquering people because if Israel could do it, then so can the church because we have now replaced Israel. By twisting scripture this way, replacement theology teaches the church supplanted ancient Israel becoming the true Israel of God. But the truth is, replacement theology is simply another form of anti-Semitism. Church, are you tracking? Replacement theology is just another form of anti-Semitism. An objective reading of Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 proves Israel and the church are two distinct entities. Christianity springs forth from the root of Judaism. It does not replace it. God has not forgotten Israel, and neither has he replaced Israel with the church. Even though Puritan preacher Cotton Mather said the newly arriving Puritan colonists were the English Israel. The Christians who came to America were never a legitimate theocracy. They came here to form a democracy, a republic. The preamble of the Constitution reads as follows. We, the people of the United States of America. It doesn't say we, the Puritans of the United States, or we, the Quakers of the United States, or we, the Christians, or we, the Deists of the United States, but no, we, the people, because democracy is rooted in the people. Theocracy is rooted in God. And so on November 19th, 1863, while delivering the Gettysburg Address, President Abraham Lincoln said, this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom and that government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. In the middle of the Civil War, President Lincoln called for American democracy to overcome Confederate fascism. He wanted to remind the country what we were founded on as opposed to this rising tide of Confederate beliefs. America did not form to be a theocracy or a Christian nation. 
America formed to be a nation that encouraged and respected religious freedom. So it wasn't founded to be a Christian nation. It was founded that those who participate in the American experiment would have the freedom of religion. The first clause of the First Amendment of the Constitution states, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. That's in the Constitution, the First Amendment. And though many of the founding fathers professed to be Christians, they held to the concept of separation of church and state. They did this, they did this to prevent any dominant religious group from violating the basic fundamental rights of those who hold to other religions or no religion at all. So when the idol of white Jesus was created, he became the normalized mascot and poster child of American Christianity and the face of replacement ideology. So although the nation encourages religious freedom, the invention of white Jesus set the nation on a track where some would assume and even believe that America was founded to be a Christian nation. Even though there are some white or Caucasian Jews, white people have not replaced the original Jews. And even though there are some black Jews or Hebrews, black people have not replaced the Jews. I say that in some places, they're going to be waiting for me. But both are a spirit of anti-Semitism. Where we want to replace you and think that we're the apple of God's eye. No, God said that to Israel. Not to the church. Not to white people. Not to black people. Now that doesn't mean God isn't crazy about us. Yes, he is. But there are certain designations that are for Israel and that are for the church. Help me, Lord. Jesus is not a white man. Jesus is not a white American. Jesus is not a white Republican. Jesus was and is a Hebrew man, the son of God. And according to the book of Revelation, who has brass-colored skin, and woolly hair. No wonder Jesus warned us about false Christs that would come and false Jews who would take their place in the last days before his return. Two times in the book of Revelation, as he speaks to the churches, he said that there was a synagogue of Satan full of people who said they were Jews but were not. So Jesus is not fooled and his children should not be fooled by those who want to replace Israel, the Jews, with the church. 
My friend, Pastor Joel Bowman, said that Christian nationalists have used white Jesus to promote and perpetuate the notion of white supremacy. It's no surprise then that Republican Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene would say, we need to be a party, speaking of the Republican Party, we need to be a party of nationalism. You see, that was a time when people would espouse these beliefs. Well, they would live these beliefs, but they wouldn't espouse them. But now, the spirit of boldness is coming forth, and she says, we need to be a party of nationalism, and I am a Christian, and I say it proudly. We should be Christian nationalists. People like her have continued to conflate Christianity with white identity politics. But what if the Muslim members of Congress sought to incorporate Sharia law into our government? What if the Mormon members of Congress sought to incorporate following the Book of Mormon into our governmental policies? What if the Hindu members of Congress said we should be Hindu nationalists? This kind of religious extremism would be unacceptable for them and it should be unacceptable for professing Christians as well. Christian nationalism is a political ideology. It's also a cultural framework that fuses Christian and American identities, thereby distorting both the Christian faith and America's promise of religious freedom. Christian nationalism relies heavily on a false narrative that America was founded to be a Christian nation. However, as I stated, America was founded to have a deliberate break with the state-established religion of the British colonies. The framers of our republic desired for the government to be neutral when it came to religion, neither promoting it nor denigrating it. Regardless of the founders' intent, Republican representatives like Lauren Boebert recently said the church is supposed to direct the government. A sitting member of Congress of the House of Representatives coming from Colorado says the church is supposed to direct the government. That's thinking like this is a theocracy, really an ecclesiology and not a true democracy. This is why Christian nationalists and the government work to pass laws that reflect their view of Christianity and its role in social life. These people want to make America great again. And they want to take the country back for God. And the strongest base of support for Christian nationalism comes from Republicans who identify as evangelical Christians or as conservative Christians. Christian nationalism is built upon racist tendencies, violence, anti-democratic sentiment, and revisionist history because it has to protect white domination. And since they can no longer get away with rewriting history because we all have receipts now, we can all speak up now without fear of being lynched. 
because they can no longer get away without, with rewriting history. They desire to keep us from learning our collective history. And they do this by censoring teachers and by banning books that tell the truth about America's racist past. Christian nationalists are opposed to common sense gun control legislation because of their blind support for the Second Amendment to protect their right to keep and bear arms. Whenever you look at history and you look at how Christians began to conquer for the cross, that's what the Crusades were. It was always accompanied with violence. Yet they claim to serve a Lord who says, put up your swords. But it's all about guns in their relationship with God. It seems that these so-called Christians are more committed to the second amendment to bear arms than they are to the second commandment to show love to your neighbor. Activist Shane Claiborne has said, it's a strange thing to live in a country where you can be pro-war, pro-guns, pro-executions, and still say you are pro-life as long as you're against abortion. Christian nationalists want a country in which their heretical version of Christianity is favored above all other expressions of Christianity and all other religions. Christian I said all other versions and expressions of Christianity because now what these people are saying that if you are a Democrat or vote Democrat, then you can't be a true Christian. And it just smacks in the face of the black church tradition and experience, which is primarily coming from a democratic base. And there's a reason for that. Doesn't mean that the Democratic platform is always right any more than the Republican platform is always right. Both of them can have nuances and, and pieces of things that are consistent with kingdom culture, but neither one fully represents the interests of God. But for one group of people to say that if you don't vote like we vote and believe like we believe, we don't care about your history of God bringing you uh, uh, out of slavery and through segregation, we don't care. You don't really know God because we define how God is to be known. Not only is that foolish, that is extremely arrogant. Christian nationalists want a country in which the church and the state are strange bedfellows that conspire together in order to accomplish their narrow political agenda. Christian nationalism conflates whiteness with Christianity, making the two indistinguishable. Christian nationalists believe God ordained white Christians to dominate the world and to do so by any means necessary, even if that means lying, incorporating violence, participating in an insurrection, and then minimizing it or even denying it. When deceived Christian people push an empire agenda disguised in kingdom verbiage. We must be quick to remind them of what the apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter three, verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven 
from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The 1619 Project by Mrs. Nicole Hannah-Jones came out in 2020. And it was intended to give a more accurate and complete treatment of American history. However, it has been adamantly opposed and rejected by Christian nationalists. This has caused Christian nationalists to manufacture a bunch of unnecessary hysteria over critical race theory. They also created a sociological dividing line over what they call wokeism or woke culture. And when it comes to comparing the empire to the kingdom, my online friend, Reverend Ben Creamer, said, We want the war horse. Jesus rides a donkey. We want the bird of prey. The Holy Spirit descends as a dove. We want the militia. Jesus calls fishermen, tax collectors, women, and children. We want to take up swords. Jesus takes up a cross. We want the nation. Jesus calls the church. We want the roaring lion. God came as a slaughtered lamb. We keep trying to arm God, and God keeps trying to disarm us. To add to this point, the Reverend Bernice King, Dr. King's youngest daughter, she said God doesn't love the United States more than he loves other countries. God is not a purveyor of an American dream that tramples many to bring prosperity to a few. So in conclusion, what happens when you care more about the empire than about the kingdom? What happens when you care more about the king, or rather the empire, and you assert that your empire is the kingdom of God? Well, the empire will always be marked by patriarchy, poisonous patriotism, human cruelty, Racism and elitism. But just for the record, and without any hesitation or equivocation, I have to state this before I take my seat. When King Jesus returns, he will return to Jerusalem and not to Washington, D.C. When King Jesus returns, he will reign from David's throne and not from the Oval Office. When Jesus returns, his feet will touch the Mount of Olives in Israel and not Mount Rushmore here in America. When Jesus returns, the law of God will go out from Zion and not from Congress. So in the meantime, what do we do with a message like this? I believe we need to speak up and speak out against any form of Christian nationalism. We need to be patient with our brothers and sisters in Christ who have been deceived by this demonic doctrine. We need to love them well with the truth, not debate them, but not back down either. 
We must speak loudly when our Christ is being co-opted and our faith is being weaponized and used as a political tool. It was author Jamar Tisby who said, to follow Christ is to reject nationalist ideology. Marjorie Taylor Greene and her allies can follow Jesus' teaching or the teachings of Christian nationalism, but they cannot do both. So what do we do? We do what Jesus told the apostles to do. As they were asking about the kingdom, is it coming now to Israel? Are you going to restore Israel now? Are you going to reign and rule from Jerusalem now? And he said, uh, you're really focused on the wrong thing. I have a plan of redemption. And you guys are part of this plan. Don't worry about times and seasons of when I will return. That, that's the father's business. I am coming. But in the meantime, let me get Acts 1-8 on the screen. Acts chapter 1. But, 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 but you shall receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So in other words, get busy working and not just looking for the kingdom to come. In other words, get out there and show the love of Christ. Share the good news of the gospel with lost people because God is not willing that any should perish because I want all of these sheep in my sheepfold. Because he told the Jews in John chapter 10, yes, I am the good shepherd, but I have other sheep who are not a part of this sheepfold. Yeah. Speaking of Gentiles. So therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, all ethnic groups. Because I'm not just the savior of the Jews, I'm the light of the world to the Gentiles. And salvation is going to come to the Jew first and then to the world. So get busy witnessing. So strong tower, be a witness. Strong tower, do not impose your faith on others. Share your faith with others. And when necessary, use words. Let's stand for prayer. I don't want man's empire. I want God's kingdom to come. And his throne is established in righteousness and judgment and not in racism, sexism, and classism. I'm looking for that king to come. Let's pray together. Father, you call the church to not only make disciples, but you also call us from time to time to have a prophetic voice and a prophetic presence to stand up against the empire, even as John the Baptist did when he lived. And standing up against the empire cost him his life. And Lord, um, to make a stand for you means that there are times we have to stand against certain philosophies, even when it comes in your name. But you call us to be discerning 
believers. You, you call us to test the spirits, to see if people are from God and if what they're saying is consistent with your word. So Lord, help us all to study, to show ourselves approved, workers who do not need to be ashamed, but rightly dividing the word of truth. Some of us focus on dividing the newspaper or dividing um, the social political pundits on cable or who's on talk radio or the latest podcast that's out. Lord, I pray that as we endeavor to be like the sons of Issachar, yet, yet we understand the times. But Lord, may we not be deceived to the point where we move away from the simplicity that is found in your love and in your word. Lord, use strong tower to speak the truth, even if they call me or the members of this church zealots or other names they've called me. Lord, uh, may we take it as a compliment and, and, and thank you for verbal persecution. But Lord, one day it may come down to the fact that some of us may have to stand up to the point of going to jail for what we believe in. Um, we are here today because past generations not only were willing to go to jail, but they were willing to die. And their faith motivated them that way. The kingdom of God rose up in the earth from the bottom up. It was not enforced from the top down. So Lord, help us as a church um, to operate and live accordingly. So Lord, we vote, we pray for those in authority, but we do not put our trust in horses and chariots. We put our trust and our hope in you, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And because of that, we have hope because we know as the old black church song says, trouble won't last always. And we're looking for the Savior to come. But until then, Lord, help us to get busy being witnesses. Help us to get busy showing love to people. Show us how to agree to disagree with people who believe differently, think differently, live differently than we do. Because, Lord, this nationalist stuff, Lord, they're known for their hatred. But you call your disciples to be known by their love. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you have shed love abroad in our hearts. That love is one of the fruits of the Spirit. So help us, Lord, to be your people who will love and serve and bless people. Because that is exactly what you do to us every day. And so, Lord, now we pray as we head down, Lord, just to have some good old table fellowship. I pray for folks, Lord, who may have a heavy heart today. One of the songs we talked about, you are able to restore. Lord, somebody in our body needs some restoration. Lord, they need a restoration in their body. They need a restoration in their mind. They need a restoration in broken relationships. People who were once reconciled and now at odds. Lord, I pray that you would restore, restore finances, restore the years that the locusts have eaten amongst your people. Thank you for sending the Holy Spirit who is like rain, the prophet Joel says. Refresh your people today. Quench the fire, Lord, of our discontent and fill us with the spirit of joy and hope and love. Now unto him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ever ask or imagine. To him be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forevermore. And all of God's people said, 
Amen. Anybody got a hand praise for Jesus? Anybody got a hand praise for King Jesus? Amen. He's riding on. He's riding on. And I'm right there in the throng. Amen. Amen. Well, let's take one off and we'll say goodbye to those of you out there in uh, TV land. We about to enjoy some good chili. God bless y'all.